It's great to be back. And I think I'm going to do this. I feel like I'm kind of separated from you. How about we just do this? Is that okay with everybody? I'm just going to be down here with you tonight. Uh, I feel like this is kind of like a class. I, I don't really have any plans to ask you any questions, though, so I'll go ahead and do most of the speaking here tonight. It's great to be here. It's been several years since I've been here, and I can't remember how long. But I enjoyed thoroughly my time with you here, and I appreciate so much the opportunity to be here tonight. I want to thank Brother Dan and Brother Rob for having the confidence in me to invite me to come. And I'm here for you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you as this congregation. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to build you up. I'm here maybe to challenge you a little bit. I'm here... Mostly as a teacher, usually what we do as preachers and teachers is not so much plow new ground as it is we remind you of what you already know, and then we build on that. We, we, we challenge you and, and push you to take it a little bit further, or a lot further. So I'll be talking to you about passages that you've read before and studied before. We'll look at them, and we're going to be reminded of things that we have seen so many times, but... We're going to use our brains here tonight to try to figure out as much as we can and benefit as much as we can. So I always ask that you have two things with you when I teach. Your Bible and your computer. Your Bible and your computer. And you know what I'm talking about. I, I can tell by the response. The Bible is in front of you. The computer is right here. The greatest computer that has ever been invented. You've got it. So thank you all for coming here tonight. Thank you very much. On behalf of all of us who are speakers, we appreciate so much your dedication. Just as Brother Glenn said, your dedication in being here tonight. Thank you for that. Thank you for the preparation. Thank you for your hospitality and your kindness. And I, I don't want to be remiss in any way in mentioning that while I'm here because from the bottom of our hearts, we really do appreciate that as speakers. We really do appreciate how kind and, and just everything that you do. It really means a lot to us, and it's an honor to us that you would treat us like kings the way that you do when we come in here. So we hope that we can give back to you just a little bit of what you've given to us. So I'm glad to see all of you, some of you again, uh, since I was here the last time, several years ago. And uh, it's great to see David and Lisa here, and it's, it's just so encouraging to have them. I know that you feel that way as the congregation. And it's, uh, it's great to, to have them here for me because I'm hitching a ride back to the airport with them tomorrow night. So there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of perks. Um, good to see students of the Bible College here tonight. Of course, Brother Dan is taking courses for years. I don't want to overlook anybody now. If you've taken one, I don't mention your name, but I don't want to overlook you because some of you might have, have taken some of those online classes. But it's good to see Brother Johnny Thomas, uh, one of our students from way over in Boston. And Brother Thomas, great to see you here. Uh, he's been a student for years uh, in the online department, but I've only met him, I think, the one time you came to, uh, to graduate a few years ago uh, for, your, for your bachelor's, and he is, he is up to graduate in December with his master's degree, master's of theology degree, and we've enjoyed very much having Brother Johnny. <clears throat> Brother Glenn, thank you for the lesson, thank you for the challenges, and thank you for the encouragement about praying. I mean, there's so many good points you made in the lesson, but thank you for giving us some, some really good practical exhortation and comfort and encouragement. We really appreciate that very, very much. 
So we've got a, a great lineup here as far as the topics are concerned. We'll say anything about the speakers. But the topics are fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And I was just talking to, to Rob and to, to Glenn on the way in here tonight that I'm a little bit jealous of some of the speakers because some of these topics are just the ones that we as preachers just live for. I mean, uh, I, I wanted to get Naomi. You know, I, I, I wanted that story. And I wanted, oh, I'd, I'd love to have had that one in 2 Kings 6. Oh, my, my. Especially the part where he says, open his eyes, Lord. Open his eyes that he may see. And he saw, you know, that, that vision there, or saw what was already there. It's just amazing. So there's so many lessons, so many great lessons. And I hope that what we talk about tonight will be something that you will remember and apply, and I believe that we can learn. So let's get started here tonight. We're talking about 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And the theme on your brochure is the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So that's, that's what we're moving toward, but I want to talk about several other things in between to get us started. I moved this stand out of the way. Usually I just like to do what I'm doing right here. Um... You know, with age comes certain vision problems, and several years ago, I had to move from a regular print Bible to a large print, and the large print wasn't big enough, so I had to move to a giant print, and then I moved to a super giant print, and this thing is heavy. I mean, it's, it's like you, you've been working out with weights after you hold this for a while, and that's why, that's why I kind of wanted to stand, but I, I feel a little bit more comfortable just being down here with you and doing this like this, so if my arm gets a little bit tired here tonight, that's, that's why. 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And what I'd like for you to think about as we start is the setting. Now, Brother Glenn has already laid out for us that the fact that this is a time of, of great famine and it hasn't rained in some time. And James is the one that tells us that it's three and a half years. I don't know if you've ever been to a country that hasn't had rain in a while, but it's kind of a scary situation. I remember being in Zambia back in 05, and it hadn't rained there in about a year, and I was told just a few years before that that it hadn't rained in two years. Brother David has been there, some of the rest of you have been in, in situations like that or in countries like that, and it makes you thankful for what we have here for sure. This is the situation. It's a time of calamity. And one of the things that I want you to think about with me tonight is what you learn and what you see about human nature in this chapter. I say without a shadow of a doubt that the greatest book ever written on human psychology, human behavior, is the Bible. Because when you read the Bible, you're getting the perspective of the one who made humans, the one who made the mind. So who knows better about how we think, how we really tick, than the one who wrote this Bible? It's like a, a man in a mission field said years ago. He said, you know, I've, I've read this book you call the Bible several times, and it just seems to me that whoever wrote this book knows me better than I know myself. Now, that's the point, isn't it? 
That's the, 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 the fact of the matter. So it's a time of calamity. One of the things that intrigues me about this is how people respond to hardships. And sometimes I've had the tendency to say, well, you know, if, if he or she or they just have it hard enough, they'll humble themselves. They'll repent. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It's not an either-or answer. It just depends on the person. So you remember the famous story of the guy that got hungry, came very hungry, wanted to eat the hog's food? What did he do? Who was that? Who was it? The prodigal son. So he came to his senses. So that kind of hardship turned him around. But you've also got people, like we're looking at here, who have undergone a lot of hardships in their life, and they're not turning it around. They're not becoming more humble. As a matter of fact, they can get even harder. They can become even more stubborn. And in Amos chapter 4, God talked to the Israelite people about withholding rain from them. As a matter of fact, here's how he said it. He said, I withheld rain from you, and I also gave you cleanness of teeth. And that's not a visit to the dentist either. Leanness of teeth simply means you don't have anything to eat. But he said they wouldn't repent. Well, sometimes that happens. It depends on the individual. Now here in 1 Kings chapter 18, you have a case of the latter. It would look like if you haven't had rain in three and a half years, and times are so hard that, that even the king is having to go out and search for grass to feed his animals, his livestock, so that they don't die, you would think that that would humble people. But you've learned, <clears throat> just like I have, that there are some people that can go through trial after trial and tribulation after tribulation, and they won't turn it around. They just won't turn to God. So that's the first thing that I want you to notice here. It's a time, it's a time of calamity. Secondly, <clears throat> it is a time, it is a time of great corruption. There's a verse a little bit later on, and since we're so close, let's just turn there in 1 Kings chapter 21. What a statement this is about Ahab and what a commentary it is on his wife. 1 Kings <clears throat> chapter 21, verse 25. But there was none like unto Ahab. There was nobody like him. You know, as you, as you read through the book of 1 Kings, it talks about Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, and then it talks about Baasha, and then it talks about Zimri and Baasha, and talks about Omri. And then it talks about Omri's son, Ahab, and it says, you know, Ahab outdid them all. There was, there was none like unto him. The Bible says, there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And then we have to get this last part here, don't we? Whom Jezebel, his wife, what? Stirred him up. She stirred him up. Now you talk about not a dynamic duo, but a devilish duo. You talk about a perfect storm when these two people got together. And sometimes today we, we, we get discouraged. Sometimes we're frustrated. And sometimes we're downright fearful of what's going to happen when we think about how corrupt politicians can be. You go back and read the Old Testament, folks. You go back and look at some of these people. You go back and look at Ahab and Jezebel here. And it makes me have a whole lot of hope about our situation here today when you compare those people. So it's a time of, of, of great political corruption. It is a time when that corruption is from the top, the top of the nation, all the way down. It is also a time of great persecution. 
Because the Bible says that Jezebel is the one that's, that's leading the way in this. She's the one, the Bible says, that cut off the prophets of the Lord. So this is persecution, brethren. This is real persecution. Now, times have been hard in, in the past several years. And in the land of the free and the home of the brave here, we've had some incidents for the past 11 years, which show that we've been losing our freedom for a long time. Actually, you can go back 100 years. Actually, you can go back 150 years. This, this thing has been coming on a long time. I've heard a lot of people say, boy, it just seemed, there was a man that, that told me at, uh, at West End where I preached the other night. He said, it, this, it seemed to happen just like that. It happened overnight. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. There had been a weakening. There had been a weakening. There had been patterns. There had been precedent set. And there had been a direction been going for a long, long time. And then all it took was the right kind of situation or the right kind of trigger to just unleash the devil in his full force. But <clears throat> when, when you look at the Bible and you look at that kind of, of corruption, it just shows what happens when people attain power. Power over other people is a very hard thing to control. And not many people can handle it, even on a, on a small scale, much less on a, on, a, on a large degree or to a large extent, like you have in a, in a ruler of a nation. But there's some people who can't even handle um, authority over other people when they only have a few people under them, you know, whether it's in their family as a father or in a, a church as an elder or in a place of business. But it gets even harder, I think. It's even multiplied that much more when you think about a nation. And sometimes when you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you think it's one king right after the other. And sometimes there's not a lot of time spent on some of these kings. You think, what is the point? There are a lot of points about that. But one of the things you learn about human nature is, is what I just said, is that if there's anything, if there's one thing that human beings can't handle very well, it's, it's usually power over other people because it's almost always abused, especially on this level. So <clears throat> the Bible says that this is a time of great persecution. Am I ringing any bells? Does this sound familiar? We've talked about hard times, and we've talked about political corruption. We've talked about the situation here that we're examining in 1 Kings chapter 18 in Israel, and how similar is that to our situation today? So what happens then is that Ahab said to Ob Obadiah, we're going to separate and we're going to look for some grass to try to save the horses and the mules. Now Obadiah, the Bible says, is the governor. He's an employee. He works under this wicked king. And I would say it this way, that guy had to learn to thread the needle. Because on the one hand, he knows that his ultimate allegiance is to God. That's first. That's first and foremost. He's working with the devil himself here and her husband. No. That's... So what, what, what is, what's he supposed to do? So the Bible says that, that he feeds these prophets of the Lord. He hides them in a cave. He takes bread and water to them. So he upholds his faith in God and his duties and responsibilities to God. He does what he can in that situation. So they split up, and when they split up, that was the perfect time for Elijah to appear to this man, Obadiah. So the Bible tells us in verse 7, as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face, and said, 
Art thou that my Lord Elijah? You, you Elijah? And then Elijah told him, said, you go tell your, your master. Behold, Elijah is here. What have I done? What, what, what did I do to deserve this? Because the very minute that I go tell him, the Spirit of the Lord will catch you away. He'll take you wherever he wants to. I'll be left there with him. He won't be able to find you, and he's going to kill me. Because he's been looking everywhere for you. Because he's blamed you. He's blamed you for us not having any rain. And when people are that vicious, when people are that mean, you can't reason with them. I mean, if Ahab had been a reasonable man, he would have thought to himself, well, if, if Elijah had a part in this, and, and, and he prayed that there wouldn't be any rain, and then there's no rain, then I ought to listen to him. Right? I mean, a, a sensible man would do that. But not when your heart is filled with hate, because that will blind you to any facts and, and any kind of reason. So the Bible says that, that he kept trying to, to reason with Elijah. He said, I'm afraid of this situation here. You know, haven't you heard what I did in feeding the prophets of the Lord? Haven't you heard how that I hid them in the cave? And, and now you want me to go and tell Ahab that Elijah is here? He'll kill me. And Elijah assured him, no, you will not. I will surely appear to him this day. So the Bible says in verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And then we have this fa famous meeting with some interesting words and an interesting exchange in verse 17 and 18. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubles Israel? Aren't you the one that's causing so much trouble in Israel? Excuse me? You, you've got the audacity to say to the prophet of God, that he's the one that's causing trouble in Israel? That happens, folks. It happens. Throughout the Bible, you find that people that are the most guilty sometimes are the quickest to blame somebody else. And sometimes they will blame the very people of the same thing that they're guilty of. How do people do that? How, how do people even, even live with themselves doing something like that? But it happens. It happens. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about, you know, the beam here in your eye and the moat in somebody else's in Matthew chapter 7. And it can happen to good people too. It happened to David, didn't it, in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Because he said, the man that done, has done this thing shall surely die. And then Nathan told him, you are the man. You're the one that I'm talking about. So this, is, this is interesting because of, of what we're experiencing today. You're the one that's causing the trouble. And the finger is being pointed at you, all of us here tonight. You're the ones causing trouble in this society. You're the ones causing the stir. You're the ones causing the division. You're the ones spreading the hate. How many times do people that believe in same-sex marriage say that about us? You're the, you're, look at what you're doing. You're causing division. You're sowing hate. They're not. They're not. And then there are people that tell us you shouldn't judge people. You know, doesn't Jesus say not to judge? Of course, they rip that completely out of its context, but you're not supposed to judge people. Don't be judgmental. You think they're not being judgmental? I found that, that, that people that ride a hobby on other people being judgmental, oftentimes, if you listen carefully, they're some of the most judgmental people you'll ever be around. And evidently, they don't see it. Are you the one that's causing the trouble? And Elijah said, I've not troubled Israel, but you 
You're the one and your father's house in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed Balaam. So he said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's make a little proposal here. You gathered me all Israel to Mount Carmel, verse 19. And the prophets of Baal, 450. And the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So the Bible says that Ahab sent to the children of Israel. And the only ones that show up are the 450 prophets of Baal. So here we have it, the famous contest on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. So in verse 21, Elijah came to all the people and he said, How long do you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And they answered him, not a word. They didn't say Baal. They didn't say God. They didn't say anything. They didn't answer. They might look at that situation and say, well, maybe it's because they don't know a whole lot. Maybe they don't understand a whole lot. Maybe they don't know enough to really make that decision. Maybe they're like the people, and sometimes, I, I, matter of fact, a lot of times I hear this verse used. Maybe they're like the people in Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But that, that verse, folks, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, that, that's really not about ignorance. I know that it's quoted that way a lot. I'm not trying to pick here tonight because I know that some of you probably disagree with that. But if you look at the context of Hosea 4, verses 1 through 6, it, it's not mere ignorance that he's talking about. What he's talking about is a failure to acknowledge God. Those people knew that God existed. They weren't acknowledging him. They weren't recognizing him. There was not an awareness. They were not thinking about God. God was not in their thoughts. And if he's not in your thoughts, he's not going to be in your life. Go back and look at that. Again, you may not agree with it right now. You may not agree with it later. But go back and look at that in Hosea 4, 1 through 6. That's what was happening to these people. It's not that they're ignorant. It's that they have deliberately chosen to expel God from their hearts and from their lives. Somebody said, well, maybe, maybe it's because they're afraid. Maybe they're just afraid to take a stand. Could be it. Maybe that's it. I remember uh, being stuck in the London airport. Oh, it was about 16, 17 years ago, something like that. We were stuck there three days. We were supposed to be in, in Africa uh, in about a two-day trip, and it ended up to be about seven days. So three of those days were spent in the uh, London airport. I remember we were talking to, uh, to a couple, a young man and his wife, who were there, and they were about to leave the country. And we just started talking about some social issues, some, some moral issues that we were interested in. And it was amazing how many of those things he agreed with us on. Said, yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you, I'm with you on that, you know. And... Um, I don't know that he was of any, I can't remember if he was of any real religious persuasion. If he was, he was kind of a nominal member maybe of the Church of England, something like that. But at any rate, we started talking about these things and we compared our countries, and it's been several years ago. We compared our countries, we compared the attitudes of people, and he said this to us. He said, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people in England that see it just like we do. But he said they're afraid to say anything. Oh, that's what's killing us, folks. That's what's killing us. I know the virus is, is, is a serious thing. I understand that. Flu is serious. Pneumonia is serious. Cancer is serious. There are many diseases that are very, very serious. But I'll tell you, the, the, the virus that is killing us is fear. It's fear. 
And if you want to perpetuate it, if you want to keep it going, if you, if you, if you want that stirred up in, in, your, in your mind and, and, and just throw gas on the fire, you keep watching the news on television and you'll have it. You'll have it. All right. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, how long do you halt between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. It may be just plain old indifference because sin will do that. You just don't care. You just don't have any conviction. And, and, and this happens to people. This happens when people go further and further away from God. When they're not dedicated to God, when they lose faith, when they're not exercising their faith in their lives, not studying the Bible, not praying to God, that happens. You get to a point to where you just don't care. And so it's like the situation that we read about in Revelation 3, 14 through 17. You remember the church at Laodicea? You're neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. So it may just be that that's what's taking place here. At any rate, the words of Jesus come home to us when he said, no man can serve two masters. He's talking about money there, I understand, but the principle how that you can't be half-hearted, you can't play both sides, is true. And what he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he that is not with me is against me. So I'm saying here also in the background of this story that this is a time of great apostasy. It is a great apostasy that has occurred in the land. These people are serving idols. Brother Glenn, uh, again, was talking about the whole concept of, of, of idolatry. That has intrigued me for years. I, I have wondered about that. I've, I've tried to wrap my mind around it. It's not that I doubt the Bible. I, I understand and, and I accept what it says about these people by the thousands and thousands. In God's nation, God's people, God's people, Worshipping a piece of wood, a piece of rock, a piece of metal. How do you do that psychologically? I mean, how, how, how do you do that? I've seen people do it. You know, I've been in other countries, several other countries. Some of you have too, and you've seen people bow down to an idol. And I've wondered, how, how does that take place? But let me go a little bit further with that. Because you can, you can see some things in the Old Testament. Once, once, a, person, once a person develops the mindset that this thing, whether it's the thing itself, but more likely, it's that that is a symbol, that, that, that that is a representation of some kind of spirit power. Either way, you can see how people in the Old Testament would give in to that because in the first place, the morals that it allowed you to practice were very low. Because if you notice, every time the people were involved in idolatry, look at what happened to their morals. So that's why you read several times in the Old Testament and the New Testament people of Israel committed fornication and they were given to idolatry. Idolatry, fornication, idolatry, fornication. Look at Romans 1, got the same thing there. They changed their idea about God. They changed in their mind their idea about God, served idols. What's the next thing that you find? The Bible says they corrupted their own body, changed the very use and the very purpose of their body. And that's when he talks about homosexuality. I mean, this is what happens. So it could be something like that, 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 that was a pull. You know, what, what did they see in that idol? Well, it gave them license to sin, first of all. It was something new. That's another aspect of why it was a pull. You could also say that, that they thought that the idol would reward or punish them. And so you had the dual, the dual motivation. If I serve this idol, then I'll be rewarded. If I displease this idol, 
then things are going to go bad. They're going to go bad financially, they're going to go bad in our relationships, home, whatever. But the thing that, that has intrigued me is how did they get to the point with Baal worship to where God's own people, God's own people who, who had the law, who had the prophets, who had at least some of these miracles that, that we're talking about, and had the stories of, of all the other miracles, how did they reach the point? Here's what I'm asking. How did they reach the point where they actually offered human sacrifices to Baal? How do you do that? How do you, how do you, how do you go from saying, I believe in the God of Israel, I serve the God of Israel. How, how do you go by the thousands to that level of depression? I've had trouble with that. I've, I've tried to just understand, what are they thinking? Just, just tried many, many times to step into the minds of people to see how, how a human being can do that. After the last 18 months, I've wondered no more. Because it's taught me, as it's taught a lot of you, that if you tell people something enough, if you tell them over and over again, I don't care how ridiculous or outlandish it is, if you just keep pounding people with it, a lot of people believe it. A lot of people believe it. What happened in Nazi Germany, it's what's happening before our eyes to this very day. But let me move on. <clears throat> the Bible says that Elijah said in verse 22, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So he makes this proposal. You guys take a bull. I'll take a bull. We'll cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood. You call on your gods. I'll call on mine, the God that answers by fire. Then let him be the God. The people said, that sounds good to us. So Elijah was, was more than fair. He said to these false prophets, you guys go first. You guys go first. That's number one. Number two, he gave them plenty of time because they started in the morning. They went to noon. And then, oh, Elijah mocked them with some godly, what I would call godly sarcasm, when he said down in verse 27, cry loud for he is a god, either he's talking, he's pursuing, he's in a journey, or peradventure he sleeps and must be awaked. So he's making fun of them. Yes, he's mocking. Sometimes, now the Bible doesn't say to do that every time you disagree with somebody. But it reaches a point where people are so hardened that it's legitimate to use that kind of approach with, with a person. So then they really get desperate and they, they cut themselves. And the Bible says that they kept trying this until the time of the evening sacrifice in verse 29. So Elijah is, is, is much more than, than generous to these people. He said, okay, it's my turn now. It's my turn. So let's repair the altar of the Lord, which had been broken down, which is a sad state of affairs and, and a tragedy in itself. So the Bible says they repaired it. It took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And then he put the wood in order, cut the bullock, the Bible says in verse 33, laid it on the, wool, on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. He said, do it the second time. And they did it. He said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the Bible says the water ran out and filled the trench that was around the altar. And as we just studied in the last hour, Water scarce. Water scarce. Are you just going to pour this out here on the ground? And the Bible says that then Elijah prayed to God in verse 36. And he prayed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel that God would answer. 
And the Bible says that in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Why did it have to take that? They had nature that, can, that, that reveals God. They had the law. They had the prophets. There were other stories of miracles and in the, in the lives of, of Elijah and Elisha, it's interesting as, as you look at it in, in terms of just the whole history of, of the Old Testament and then coming to the New Testament, that you don't read about that many miracles in Genesis. Not, not really. I mean, obviously at the first you read about a lot, but, it, but it, kind of, it, it kind of tapers off. And then when Moses comes on the scene, there's a spike. I mean, it, it, it goes through the roof with, with the miracles of Moses. In about 40 years there, all kinds of them. And it kind of tapers off a little bit more. And then you, you come on up several hundred years to the time of Elijah and Elisha, especially, and it spikes not as big, not as much, but it spikes again because you got Moses the law and you got Elijah, who represents oftentimes the prophets. And then it kind of tapers off again and then it reaches a point where about 400 years before Christ, those miracles disappear because there are no prophets. And even the, you know, the Jewish writings, the Apocrypha, say that there was a time when the prophets ceased. So there were no Bible books being written. There were no miracles being delivered and so forth for about 400 years. Then, of course, before Jesus, uh, and even before John the Baptist is born, the miracles start back again. The miracles start back again. Why is that? Because now we're going to have a new law. Now we're going to have revelation from God. So you got Zechariah, the son of uh, John the Baptist, and the vision that he saw, and all the revelations involved in that. So you got a huge, huge spike with that. But I've gotten off the subject. Let me get back. I want to talk to you just a few minutes about the importance of recognizing God, and offer just a few observations, uh, a few pieces of advice. Some of these are judgment calls. I don't want to bind everything on you and just make you feel that I'm, I'm trying to condemn you if you don't do it exactly this way. But just a few things that I've kind of learned and, and seen and experienced over the years. So let's get started on it. Um, in the first place, there has, been, there has been a shift in this society in the views that people have toward God. That's not new. When I first started preaching, about 42 years ago. About the first 10 to 15 years that I preached, a lot of us preachers used uh, a statistic. And that uh, statistic would, would vary in, in points somewhat. But, but the, the idea was that the majority of people in America believe in God. And it was 90 plus percent. I mean, you, you'd see one survey, and you might say 92, some would say 95, you know, and so forth. And, and then it, it started to, to back off some. It got, got into the 80s, and there was a, a survey that was done by Arizona Christian University last year in 2020, which was, was really scary because it showed that only about half of the people that were surveyed in that, in, in, in that research said that they were sure that God existed. So what, what has happened is, is not only is our country becoming less religious, and I think that, I think you'd agree with that. I think that we can, I, I think we're on the same page about that. But you, you've also got a change in the way that people 
even think about God and who he is. In other words, it's not just that you have more people that doubt God that are agnostics. You know, an agnostic is somebody that says, well, you know, I don't know, nobody knows whether God exists. It's not just that. But you also have people who say they believe in God, but it's not the God of the Bible. There's more and more of that. Our, our country's becoming more and more diverse. And so you get the Muslim view of God, you get the Buddhist idea of God, you've got the Hindu idea of many different gods, and then you've got a smorgasbord, I mean all kinds of ideas about God and, and what he is. And so there are a lot of people that say that, well, you know, I, I believe that, that God is this kind of God, he's a God of love, but I don't believe that he punishes people in hell, and so it just, it just multiplies. And so even among the people that say that they believe in God, there are a lot of those that really don't have a, a Bible view of God, and we need to understand that. We, I'm, we need to remember that. I'm not trying to depress you here, but we've got to face the facts. We've got to be real about this. This is the world in which we live. So uh, I'm saying, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn here, but um, Brother Dan, you were, you were telling me that the plan for next year at the lectureship is a theme of the attributes of God. And so, okay, it's okay to say it then. <laughs> I, all right, all right. Next year, remember, uh, make your reservation to be here next year, attributes of God. Great idea, great idea. That's, that's where we're at, folks. We, we've got to remind members, we've got to teach our young people who God is. Let me say something else about this that, that I've thought quite a bit about in regard to Old Testament Israel because those stories have to be in there for a reason. Why, why are they there? Why does it talk so much about idolatry? And Especially back home in the Bible Belt, I mean, you talk about idolatry, and you want to put a congregation to sleep, just have a, a sermon on idolatry. Because it's, why? why? Why are you preaching about that here? I mean, this is Middle Tennessee. We have more churches than any place in the world, you know, the Bible Belt, Middle Tennessee, Texas, Alabama, and so forth. And so for some people, it's hard to get motivated about that, but stay with me here. Stay with me. When, when, people, when people start turning away from God, when they start turning away from the true God, a lot of the time, I, I don't know that I can say most of the time, a lot of times when people turn away from God, they don't become atheist. They don't. The same survey that I was talking about um, showed that about 6% of the population of America is, is atheistic, about 6%. Now again, you say there are three kinds of lies. There are three kinds of lies. Black lies, white lies, and statistics. So I know, I know you can't rely. I know, I know you can't just boil it down to an absolute science. But I think by experience, I, I think by observation, we can, we can see that, that some of these things are, are, are verifiable. But in a lot of cases, they don't become atheists. Now, some of them may become agnostics. That, that's true, and we've got a, a lot of, of the surveys that have been done say that about a quarter of the population of America is now in the categories that they call, a category they call the nuns. You know, I just don't believe much of anything, and if I do, it's what I, what I make up, you know, what I decide in my mind. <laughs> but here's, here's what I want to put out to you. I'm not trying to be a prophet here, because I'm not. But I'm just basing this on Old Testament history. I'm basing it on New Testament history. I'm basing it on what has happened in other countries. When people turn away from the true God, if they don't turn to atheism in the majority of cases, 
They don't even turn to agnosticism in the majority of cases. What are they going to turn to? They're going to they're, a lot of times, what I'm saying is, many times they will replace, they will replace that empty spot with some kind of spiritual belief. And notice I said some kind of spiritual belief. So they may replace it with an idol, like the people did in the Old Testament. But in a lot of your more advanced civilizations, you know, we like to think of ourselves as, as advanced. In a lot of those civilizations, what happens is you will have people turning to some really mystical things, superstitions. Let, let me give you a few examples here. I mean, shaking your head, you've, you've encountered this. About this time, matter of fact, I was just getting back 30 years ago, 30 years ago, right about right now, I was getting back from Russia. And we went into a, a, a Russian university and, and lectured there for two weeks, every day, every day. And before I went, I thought, what are they going to ask? What are they going to talk about? I knew that there would be a lot of questions about God. I knew there would be a lot of atheists there, and there were. Maybe not as many as I thought. So you deal with those kinds of questions. <clears throat> how, do, how do you know that, that there is a God? How do you know that the Bible is really the, the Word of God and so forth? But one of the things that just, just kind of puzzled me is you'd have students to come up after the classes and they would say, well, uh, Mr. Duke, um, so, so what do you think about reincarnation? And I thought, and it wasn't once, it wasn't twice. And I'm not saying that, that most Russians are, are believers in reincarnation. But I was thinking to myself, where did this come from? I mean, this, this, has been, this has been a communistic state for all these years. And you have been taught, you have been taught that the only thing that exists is matter. That's it. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing spiritual. And you know what? It didn't take. It didn't hold. Because they knew, in the back of their minds, they knew there's more than what you see. They knew it. Sometimes, in that kind of situation, what people will do is they will grasp for any kind, any kind of belief. Now, that may open the door for teaching them the gospel. It may not. It just depends. But what I'm saying is, in, 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 in that kind of void, sometimes they will reach for that kind of superstitious, mystical outlook. Same thing in Great Britain. Same thing in Great Britain. You turn back a clock 500 years or 1,000 years, Great Britain was a... a really a hot spot of religious activity. A lot of debates and a lot of preaching of all kinds and dis different kinds of religions. I understand that. But you had people that, that at least believed in God. They at least believed that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and, and a lot of them believed that the Bible was the Word of God. They didn't reach the right conclusions many times, but, but they, they were fervent about that. Once they began to leave that, and, and, and atheism started becoming more prominent, and, and I read a, uh, a, a figure, oh, I would say about 20 years ago, that there were more people in Great Britain that believed in ghosts than believe in God. And uh, after having been there and, and, and just looked at the irreligion of the society, I thought, I can kind of see that. I can kind of see that. Why is that? Why is that? There's a void there. So you, you, don't, you don't believe in God. You don't want that kind of God but you still believe in the spirit world because that's what a ghost is, supposedly. You know, it's a wandering spirit that's left a body. All I'm saying is, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if that doesn't happen here. I'm not saying that all your neighbors are going to become witches and warlocks, but I'm saying, I'm saying, 
that that's, that's a real, real possibility. Well, let me talk to you a little bit about how to teach people that are doubters, maybe they're agnostics, maybe they're atheists, uh, maybe they believe in some other kind of God, and, and, and not only teaching people who are outside the church, but teaching our young people, teaching our members. Just a few things here, and some of these are judgment calls, so you weigh them for whatever they're worth, okay? Uh, number one, <clears throat> keep it simple. Keep it simple. And we've got classes, and, and I've taught these for years. We use words that are this long. But the reason, the reason that we do that, the reason we do that is because we want the students to understand those words when they see them or hear them. That's the reason. That's the main reason. Sometimes it's just, it's just more convenient to boil it down into a word than it is to explain what that word means. But what I'm saying is, is that when, when I'm preaching to the, to the church, or I'm preaching anywhere, I don't use big words. I don't use big language. And, and I, don't, I don't get into a lot of scientific details or any, or any philosophical concepts, you know, with the big, long words. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus didn't and Paul didn't. That's why. And we're communicating to people that, that, that are not schooled in those areas. And I don't have a background in biology and, and geology. Now, it's interesting, you know, to hear those discussions, but I'm just saying that we can present those in a way that all of us can understand. I know if the Apostle Paul went into the city of Athens, and he was talking to some of the most brilliant minds of the day. Those were the philosophers in, in Athens, and they'd had that rich history. I mean, that's the place where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you ever read anything those guys wrote? Oh, my. Paul knew about all that. He knew about all that. But you know what he did? You know how he presented God to those people who were serving idols, had all different kinds of ideas of God? You know how he did it? It's very, very simple. When he was talking to the Jews, they had a background of the Bible. He opened up the scriptures. When he was talking to the Gentiles, Acts 14, Acts 17, what does he do? He preaches nature. Nature, nature, nature. God that made all this. The God that made all this is the God that I want to talk to you about. And we can do that. You can do that. You can do it with people that you work with. You can do it with your children. That's where the power is. So I know I know that there's power in that. I'm not putting down, I'm not discounting the fact that there, there's a need for some, some specialized studies and technical explanations. I've done that, my share of it, to whatever extent that I can. But I'm just saying that by and large, what we do, do in the church needs to be along that particular line. And just a, just a thing or two more about that. Um, and I don't have a whole lot of time to explain this, but... Um, in, in, in the church, there, there is sometimes an objection to what I've said, and it's been there for several years. This is what I really don't have time to go into and explain. But I'll tell you the, 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 the sentiment that I've heard sometimes. And I heard this uh, uh, sitting and listening to a preacher. And if I mentioned his name, uh, most of you would know it. But he was against the idea of saying that nature proves that God exists. And he said, I want you to tell me what you can know about God by staring at the moon. He was quite upset about it. He, he just said, you can't know anything about God by staring at the moon. Well, you can actually know quite a few things about God. You can know that the one who made that has to be all-powerful. You can know that the one who made that is highly intelligent because the moon serves purposes. 
you can know that the one who made that is a loving God because it's so beautiful and, and God made it for us to, to behold in our lives. That, that, kind, of, that kind of resistance to, to saying that, that nature proves God goes back to the 1800s. There was a movement then and today. It was called deism. Deism says the only Bible you need is nature. That's all you need. Deism said and says today, this book is false. Deists say we believe in God, the true God, the true God. Like Thomas Paine, Thomas Paine said, I believe in one God no more. Now that's deism. That's the idea that nature tells you everything you need to know about God, everything you need to know about how to live, and everything you need to know if the deist believes in afterlife to have heaven in the afterlife. And what happened was is that there were brethren who confronted that and they said, that's wrong. You can't go to heaven without the Bible. And you know what's very, very common in religion? It's very, very common to go from one extreme to the other. So the deist said, nature is all you need. And there were some brethren that said, nature doesn't give you anything. You have to have the Bible. Well, if that's true, then the only people that are accountable to God are people that have read the Bible. When you think about it, that's not true. That's not true. Now, the Bible says in Romans 1, verse 20, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Abraham Lincoln once said, that he never looked at the stars at night, but what he felt that he was beholding the very face of God. So nature doesn't tell you everything about God. It doesn't. It doesn't tell you what you need to know to, to, to be saved. It, do, it doesn't tell you a lot of things. But it does reveal the one true and the living God. And I just wanted to cover some of those things with you here tonight. Thank you for your good attention. I really appreciate this. If you've got any question, if you want to talk further about these things, I'll be glad to may not know the answer, um, but at least we can talk about it a little bit. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe in one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. Another popular belief today, it's been out there a long time, but it seems like it's getting more common, is the idea that, well, hey, I believe in God. I believe in God, and you know, I pray to God, and I have a talk with the good Lord every once in a while and so forth, so... Well, you know, I, I think I'm saved. That's what people more and more in some areas are beginning to think. The Bible says that it's absolutely necessary to believe in God. That's not enough. That's not enough. Even the devils believe that. The Bible says they tremble. The Bible says we must believe in God. We must believe in Jesus Christ, his son. We must believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We must repent of our sins. We must confess him, and we must be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. You've never done that. You've thought about it, but you've never made that move, and we want to encourage you here tonight to become a child of God. If you've wandered from God, if there's sin in your life, you need the prayers of the church, this is the time to make that response. Would you come right now while we stand and we sing together?